It tastes better. Brown's chicken. It tastes better. Brown's chicken. It tastes better. Brown's chicken. People are discovering Brown's chicken really does taste better. We use only the freshest grade A chickens with no heavy spices to cover up the flavor. That's the thing about Brown's. It tastes better. Brown's chicken. It tastes better. Brown's chicken. It tastes better. Boom, 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 boom. It Killed, part two of the Browns Chicken Massacre. It's a suburban Chicago murder case that went unsolved for nearly a decade. Notoriously known as the Browns Chicken Massacre, the restaurant owner, his wife, and five employees all shot to death and put in the freezer in 1993. Their bodies found the next day. We have circumstantial evidence putting him at the scene. We have circumstantial evidence that he committed the crime. We have circumstantial evidence that he was involved and that he actually committed the murders. Some 16 years after their loved ones were murdered inside a suburban fast food restaurant, victims' families brace for another trial. Both Dagorski and Luna were arrested in May of 2002 after Dagorski's ex-girlfriend told police they confessed to her about their roles in the slayings just uh, shook up the suburbs. I mean, not that you would expect this anywhere, but it's just uh, where it happened, how it happened. You know, seven employees were found in, uh, in you know, in, in the restaurant. And, uh, and what happened was, long story short, uh, their family members were getting worried. They weren't home. It's early in the morning. Where are they? And then the discovery was made, and it just uh, changed so many people's lives beyond you know, the victim's family's life. It wasn't until 2002 that DNA evidence helped crack the case. Police arrested James Degorski and Juan Luna, both now serving life sentences. It appears the prosecution understands that this is an uphill battle. The jury will not hear the videotape confession of Juan Luna. What they will hear, though, are two key prosecution witnesses. That would be Degorski's ex-girlfriend and also another friend of Degorski's. Both these women say that Degorski told them about his role in the slayings. In the meantime, uh, we are told as well that prosecutors are ready to go, but are going to have to deal with the fact that that lack of hard evidence. Opening arguments begin this morning. I'm very pleased with the verdict, uh, but Judge Gaughan's decorum order is still in full force and effect. As you know, this case is not over yet, so I'm very limited in what I can say. How confident are you that you might convince them to spare his life? I certainly am going to do my level best. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a slow burn media production. This week we will be picking up where we left off in the tragic case of the Browns Chicken Massacre in Palatine, Illinois in 1993. To give you a bit of a recap, seven people were found murdered in the walk-in coolers of Browns Chicken in the Chicago suburb of Palatine. The victims ranged from high school students to the older couple who owned the restaurant. Police identified the people who were killed as Richard Ellenfelt, his wife Lynn of Arlington Heights, Guadalupe Maldonado of Palatine, and four other employees, Michael C. Castro, who was just 16, Rico Solis, 17, they were both Palatine high school students, and the other victims were Palatine residents Thomas Menez, 32, and Marcus Nelson, 31. In part one, we discussed the large influx in population in the suburb during the 1970s and 80s and how the town may not have been prepared for the violence associated with such a burst of people. Chicago was, at the time of the murders, one of the most dangerous cities in America. 
This led people to the safe combines of the suburbs. Palatine was a quiet town in the 60s, but as the rents increased in the city and the suburbs became a safe haven, Palatine became a destination place. The funny thing about crime is that it doesn't really know geography, and it will travel right along with the people seeking to escape it. Palatine would have been considered one of the safer retreats, as it is only 30 miles to the north of the city of Broad Shoulders. One of the things that I touched on was the proliferation and exploitation of teenagers in the fast food world. As a refresher, Illinois has no restrictions on workers 16 years and older, but state law does state that 14 and 15 year olds are limited to three hours a day and no more than 23 hours a week during the school year. Now, if a teenager does want a job in the state, they must obtain a work permit from their school. When the school is not in session, unfortunately, that's when the rules get tossed in the garbage. So when a school is out, Illinois teens under 16 can put in up to eight hours a day and up to 48 hours a week. And they can work as late as 9 p.m. Two of the victims in this case were high school students, as I mentioned. And many of them were friends and had many friends at the local public school of Palatine High School. And Sue Ellen Christian and Curtis Lawrence of the Chicago Tribune wrote an excellent article about the impact of a murder of a fellow student and how basically it can directly impact the school and how people feel about the school systems in general. And their article or their story was titled, An Empty Desk Says It All. And I'm just going to go ahead and uh, read directly from this article because it's really well done. And it states, Palatine High School junior Jesse Dionestos knew the tragedy was real when he walked into his fifth period Algebra 2 class. Quote, he's usually there in class before I am, the 16-year-old said. Quote, not seeing him here is weird. Another 16-year-old, Michael Castro, used to sit a couple desks behind Dionestos. But on Friday night, or early Saturday, Castro and fellow Palatine student Rico Salas, again, they were part of the murders at the Browns Chicken. Quote, how strange it is to have that empty desk. With the spirit of unity, it celebrates its sports victories. The family of Palatine High School did pull together quickly and quietly and solemnly mourn the loss of two of its own. By the end of the subdued, tear-filled school day, light blue ribbons in memory of the victims were on the jackets and lapels of scores of students and faculty. A quickly organized fundraiser to help for the teenagers' funerals yielded $1,500 within hours. Now, granted, this was 1993, so there was no GoFundMe back then. But the outpouring of student grief seemed to be dammed up a while as the crimes remained unsolved. Now, the hours passed without an arrest and without any new information to quell students' fears that the person or people who committed the murders were still free, it definitely left people on edge. Quote, I think it'd be better for us to find out the information, said Matt Patricia, 17, the president of the senior class. Quote, until that happens, you're not going to have a sound reaction from kids. Close friends Castro and Salas were drill partners and sat next to each other in the back rows of teacher David Freeman's World Problems class. Grief over their deaths blanketed the school's normally clamorous halls with a dull quiet. Quote, not many people talked because they're still in shock, unquote, said Jackie Gamroth, 17, a senior at Palatine High School. 
The question of why kept coming up. Soon after the first period bell, Principal Nancy Robb made an announcement on the public address system, expressing sympathy and disbelief over the tragedy, and concluded with a moment of silence. In some classes, that brief moment lasted as long as 15 minutes. No one really knows what to say, McCloskey said. As they were searching for answers, more than 100 students were too emotional to concentrate, so they left classes and sought counseling. Social workers, psychologists, and others from the other District 211 high schools joined Palatine's staff to create a pretty much a task force of crisis counselors to help the students deal with this awful tragedy. Quote, we just wanted to let out what we felt was shock, said Cassandra Fire, who, along with her friend Missy Werner, 16, spent second period receiving counseling. Quote, they were so young. As the bells rang to begin and end periods, the talk in the hallways, in classrooms, and over lunch focused on trying to put the pieces together. Students were trying to just basically make sense out of a completely irrational situation, according to Counselor Mark Denny. Now, the school's 30 or so peer counselors were allowed to leave classes to help support the students who wanted to talk to someone their own age. Quote, over the weekend, kids haven't been with each other. They didn't have the reactions of other students to deal with. So today you get all the reactions together, according to Jenny Shulavists, who 16 was a fellow peer counselor. Now, overcome with emotions, friends of the two teenage victims broke down in tears during classes and in the middle of the school's wide, carpeted hallways. Other students said many in the large high school had never known the two victims, but that didn't matter. Quote, even if you didn't know the people, they're still like family if they're going to high school with you, said senior Josh Glorch, 17. Now, Stanley Holmes and Don Babwin of the Chicago Tribune, they also wrote an excellent article. And this one is more focused on the life of the owners and how much they were impacted by basically everything that kind of was going on in the early 90s. And the title of the article was Generous Owners Worked Hard to Make a Good Life. And Holmes and Babwin give a thorough accounting of how much the Browns chicken meant to the new owners. And basically it starts off by saying a corporate buyout had forced Richard Ellenfelt out of his executive job and Brown's chicken had become his way back to the top. A longtime neighbor, John Bruce, had told the Tribune that he kept telling me, I have to go into this business, John. It's the only way I can make it. Unfortunately, the Brown's chicken and pasta franchise where Richard and his wife planned to start over became his final resting spot. On January 8th, 1993, Richard and his wife and five of their employees, again, were found dead. Neighbors told the paper that Richard and his wife had poured most of their assets and most of their time into the franchise. They had worked long hours, which brought, they brought within last year, putting in double shifts to learn their new trade. Coworkers had said they were considerate. They, quote unquote, really cared. Before the couple had bought the franchise, they had earned a reputation as very active members of the community. Richard Ellenfelt was the president of the 
HOA in the affluent Arlington Heights subdivision where the family had lived since 1985. Lynn volunteered for community organizations and was active within school issues. The Ellenfelts always participated in the Ivy Hill subdivision's annual garage sale selling household items, and they always served hot dogs in their front of their blue and white two-story home. Now, I'm going to read directly from the article here. Quote, it was like a fair, recalled Barbara Macaluso, a neighbor. There were flags, family, and friends. But neighbors said all that changed when the family purchased the fast food franchise. They immersed themselves in the new enterprise, working 12 and 16-hour days, their daughters helping them out when they could. Quote, we never saw them after they bought the restaurant, neighbor Robert Becker said. Dick said it was a lot of long hours, but that it was what it took to succeed. Now, Richard's previous job had some cachet as having held posts as vice president and director of government and public affairs for his previous position. On that following Saturday morning when the bodies were found, Ivy Hill residents expressed shock and outrage upon learning that their friends were most likely the victims of the killing. Quote, It's like the city's problems are all out in the suburbs, unquote, Becker said. It really hits home when it happens next to you. The Beckers and others described the Ellenfelts as very family-oriented and upbeat. Now, Richard was very optimistic, even when he lost his job. And neighbors said the couple spent a lot of time with their daughters, Jennifer, Joy, and Dana. All three had graduated from Buffalo Grove High School and were active in sports. Fellow Tribune reporters Peter Kendall and Robert Becker had contributed to this article as well. The Browns' chicken massacre had seven victims, and any time you have seven victims in a crime or a murder such as this, you're going to have a lot of digging to do. And it's interesting to see what they were doing in 1993 as far as investigations go. It's not that different than what it is today, although we do have the ability to track things a little bit more simply. And that is only because of technological advances and advancements in DNA as well as all the other technological improvements in crime scene investigations. If this crime would have occurred in, let's say, 2020, we probably wouldn't have had to wait a certain amount of time before we found the answers. The case itself, the Brown's Chicken Massacre, had dragged on for about three years before people really started to get antsy. And it wasn't just the citizens, it was actually the owner of Brown's Chicken that brought this to the attention of the local papers as well as he, for, he filed a complaint with the police. You know, he wanted to know more because it not only did it impact all the families as well as, you know, the students that these kids went to high school with, but it also impacted this gentleman's business to a, a degree that none of us could really understand. Brown's Chicken at one point had over 300 restaurants and 
I believe I read a statistic that stated chicken sales in the area in his restaurants had dropped some 30 to 70 percent after the crimes. So it was definitely something that not only impacted the community, but it impacted local businesses. It impacted the schools and it impacted the reputation of the city itself. And again, law enforcement may not have been fully equipped to handle this type of investigation. And I believe that is why they made it a multi-jurisdictional investigation. And luckily, they kept certain items that will eventually come to play in the discovery of who actually committed these crimes. And it's amazing to think that the crime scene investigators at the time were able to think beyond what was available as far as technological advancements go. So I just wanted to put my two cents in before we continued on with the story, just because, again, when you have these types of cases, you don't really know where to start unless it is one of the people related to one of the victims, a love affair gone wrong, a just a lover's quarrel in general. I mean, those are easily explained, not necessarily easily accepted as far as being, you know, a person related to the victim, but as far as an understanding on why somebody would have committed this crime, definitely would have helped the investigators as they progressed through the investigation. Unfortunately, nobody talked. And there really wasn't anybody saying anything. And despite there being a few arrests after the initial crime, it really, you know, uh, went cold. And it's not surprising at all to think that Frank Portillo, who owned the chicken, the Browns chicken franchises and, you know, the name, would be upset at the fact that the investigation, one, it felt like it was not going anywhere, and two, what were they doing to protect future restaurant employees? And that that was an issue. Again, like I said, a lot of people who are employed in these industries are under the age of 21, and they do it because they have to do it. They do it to make ends meet. They do it to help their parents pay their bills. And so, therefore, if that option is not there, these people are left kind of destitute. So I understand Frank's position in wanting to find answers, and I don't see it as a selfish thing at all. I find it to be a compassion thing because he's looking for answers for these family members as well as the people who he employs. Because I'm sure that those employees at all the other different restaurants had to feel a little nervous every time that they went to work, knowing that some of their co-workers at another location were murdered. It's just tragic. Thank you to this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. As a true crime podcaster, I can tell you, I spent a lot of time looking into the not-so-bright sides of life. And after a while, my brain needs to be refreshed. So to clear my mind... My new go-to tool is Best Fiends. And Best Fiends is a puzzle game that you can play 
right on your phone. It is actually a lot of fun. And your brain will be engaged as you go from level to level and face challenging puzzles. But it's actually a casual, fun game that really anyone can play. I recently passed level 375, and I am really enjoying the game. Best Fiends won't take up much of your time, but what it does do is it makes those moments like, I don't know, waiting for your next meeting or your next appointment a lot more fun. I spend a lot of time at home these days, and this has become my go-to app for brain cleansing. The best part, you don't even need an internet connection to play. The game is so beautiful, it really does soothe my mind. The cute characters and the challenging levels just make it better. Best Fiends updates monthly. It is always fresh. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of the cute characters. And trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. In 1996, John O'Brien, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, wrote an article titled, 93 Palatine Massacre Still Puzzles Police, and it was subtitled, Police Chief Jerry Bratcher Defends the Task Force's Work. And I'm going to read directly from this article because it's really well written, and it states, The enormity of the crime demanded a decisive police response, equal to the challenge of a mass killer. Seven people lay dead from gunshot wounds inside a suburban restaurant. Who killed them and why were questions put to a hastily formed task force of local cops and federal agents all hand-picked. Added to the mix was law enforcement's best criminal computer, the pride of the FBI, made available to sort out and make sense of the hundreds of investigative leads, only to fail and come up empty. Three years after the Chicago area's single worst homicide rampage since the murders of eight student nurses in 1966, the task force created to solve the murders at the Brown's Chicken and Pasta restaurant in Palatine exists on paper only. Its mission is wanting. The challenge forged with the, chi- with the killings of the two Browns franchise owners and five employees on January 8, 1993, remains... The killer roams free. But if there has been no clear answer to the mystery, there is no shortage of criticism and second-guessing of officials. Failure to bring anyone to justice for a crime as horrific as it appeared amateurish, given the price in lives for a relatively small robbery, has divided former task force members ignited embarrassing and sometimes overblown media exposés, and in the words of one senior official, given, quote, a lot of heartburn for everybody. On top of that is the appeal of the owner of the Browns chicken chain, which I mentioned before, Frank Portillo Jr. He asked for an independent review of the investigation. He wants to know whether the strategy differences among sleuths and inexperienced task force administrators had derailed the inquiry. We are talking and taking the request very seriously, said Thomas Kirkpatrick of the Chicago Crime Commission. Our interest is to see that the public gets good law enforcement. If it makes mistakes were made or issues were there, we want to know it. Now, in another article that goes into detail about Portillo's 
you know, asking for an investigation. Basically, Portillo had asked the Crime Commission and the Better Government Association to investigate, which would, I would assume, be something similar to the Better Business Bureau. Quote, it's one of the best task forces ever assembled, Palatine Police Chief Jerry Bratcher says in defense of his investigative personnel, both from within and borrowed from outside his small but eager department. Quote, we had every bit of talent we could muster. The talent on hand still includes a retired FBI employee skilled in violent crime detection and an expert on blood splatter who had testified in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Quote, in Bratcher's defense, said one senior investigator, I say that if there was a guy on the moon who knew the answers, Bratcher would do what it takes to talk to him. He brought in anyone he thought could help. Bratcher is reluctant to discuss the source of much criticism, a suspect identified by a jail informant as either the killer or a person with knowledge of the crime or how the lead, known as, quote, lead 80 in task force jargon, was handled. The informant, identified as Ronaldo Avies, was later found dead in his Cook County jail cell. Authorities said he died of poisoning, and then they ruled his death a suicide. Bratcher said last week that although the suspect, Jose Morales Cruz, imprisoned on unrelated charges, was never charged in the killings, he is a suspect Cruz has denied any role in the massacre. Cruz has been touted as a hot suspect early on in the investigation by several task force members, principally Richard Zuli, a veteran Chicago homicide detective and Naval Reserve intelligence analyst. But Bratcher and other officials didn't see it that way, and Cruz went from a hot suspect to a cold one. Zuli went back to Chicago. Quote, I don't care or don't care to go into the thing with him, Bratcher said of Zuli. He believes this is the guy. We have never, ever dismissed Cruz as a suspect, and Zuli has not commented publicly about the dispute. Now, friends say he is steadfast in his belief about Cruz, and including the suspect's unique characteristic of carrying around a pocket full of bullets and discharging a gun during holdups. That Cruz hasn't been ruled out is, in part, because authorities in three investigations, separate and unrelated to Palatines, also developed informants who, independent of one another, named Cruz as a suspect in the massacre. Task Force officials believed all along it was probably the work of gang members. Proving so has been impossible. Although Avia's information looked good for a time, his credibility was really lacking. I don't believe that Cruz would have been the perfect suspect other than the fact that the investigators had nothing to go on. Now, Cruz, as I mentioned, his credibility was certainly something that came into question, and he was caught in lies while being interrogated. And he's also backed out of an agreement where he placed a recorded phone call uh, to Cruz, and the phone he claimed to have spoken on with Cruz earlier wasn't equipped to take incoming calls. A zero lead, one official said of lead 80, suggesting, quote, a vendetta may have prompted Avias to implicate Cruz. Avias kept jerking us around. What has been very clear to investigators, however, is the belief that one of the victims, 16-year-old Michael Castro, 
may have recognized his assailant in a would-be robbery just after Brown's closed on the night of the murders. Castro was the only victim beaten before he was shot. On Monday, the third anniversary, again, this is in 1996, the Palatine Task Force, now down to five local officers and one each from state police and Cook County Sheriff's Department, planned to make public what Bratcher had described as a couple of ideas not previously released. He said he hopes the classified information and reward money, which had reached a whopping $115,000, might jog someone's thoughts. I cannot give mental recognition that this case will not be solved. It only takes one phone call to make that happen. Bratcher knows full well the truth of that logic. He was chief in 1977 when Palatine housewife Stephanie Ling disappeared during a messy divorce. Although no trace of her was ever found, her husband, millionaire vending machine operator Edward Ling, was convicted of her murder 17 years after the fact through persistence and a single phone call. The Ling case was solved, Bratcher said. So can this. As I've mentioned before, the Chicago Tribune in 1993 was still a thriving newspaper with hundreds of staff writers and reporters, and Michael Martinez and John O'Brien wrote an article titled New Doubts About Brown's Probe, Executive Asks Review in Palatine Massacre. They basically wrote about Frank Portillo's request and They state that the three-year probe into the unsolved massacre of the seven workers at the Browns' chicken and pasta in Palatine has been long dogged by questions of internal dissension among police working to crack the case. But in that time, Frank Portillo, president of the Oak Brook-based restaurant chain, stood beside authorities and lent them moral support by crusading about the funding needs of police and the criminal justice system. But now, Portillo has apparently turned his campaign toward police officials themselves and the detectives investigating the case. Now, again, this all happened in January 1993. Technological advancements weren't there. DNA was very, very rarely brought up, if ever, but it was thought of, at least. Frank Portillo had been following the case, as well as everything that had been coming out, and he raised questions about investigators and how they handled a suspect early in 1993. So he asked two civic watchdog groups to review the conduct of the Palatine police and the task force that was set up to investigate the killings. Now, again, as I mentioned before, that task force included members of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, the Chicago Police Department, as well as the Sheriff's and Illinois State Police. So Portillo's call for a review of police conduct came after he had met with Palatine police officials, all in an effort to get them to comment on reports he had received unofficially about problems in the investigation. Portillo has expressed had expressed concern following the news reports about how Palatine police conducted an investigation of Jose Morales Cruz shortly after the slayings, officials said. 
even though Cruz was released. But Portillo has raised an issue of whether there was an adequate exchange of information. As the task force and the police department were being raked over the coals by the public, the media, and Frank Portillo, I can't blame him. Uh, I do understand the difference between having a successful business and an unsuccessful business. And if you're somebody who is a family-oriented person and is really concerned about their employees, I can understand his absolute disregard for the lack of movement in this case. I do feel like his feeling about Cruz being a potential suspect and the information that he received from his quote-unquote sources, I don't know. I don't know if I would buy into that too much. And if, But if I was frank at that time, I also probably would have. I'm not going to lie. I think at that point you're really grasping at anything that you can put your hands on. And, you know, again, as I mentioned before, this was murder that didn't just impact one family. Although the parents of one family were murdered. I mean, I can't imagine the ripple effects that has on the daughters, the granddaughters, and just future children in their lives. I mean, they always have to explain what happened to grandma and grandpa. And that is tragic. And so it is very, very disturbing to know that for nine years, basically nothing happened. I mean, yes, did they investigate certain things? Sure. But they were pretty much on a, you call us and we'll come check it out when we get the chance type of thing. There really wasn't any concrete evidence. So it was tough to say that the police are at fault. It's also tough to say that Frank's at fault for questioning the police. I think everybody just wanted answers. It's three years after the fact, and we still have three years of unanswered questions. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And for a family who owns 300 of these or is the president of 300 of these locations, like Frank was, I can only imagine the amount of pressure he was getting from his franchise owners to get to the bottom of this case, especially if it was an inside job. That is the thing that is the most important, because if it was an inside job and somebody knew what was going to happen and how to get to the safe, because the safe, as I mentioned in episode one, always sat by that one particular door, I think that would raise a lot of alarm for any employee or any franchise owner or anybody who is a parent that has kids working for Brown's Chicken. So Frank is in the right. I'm not going to blame him. And he has all the right in the world to question the investigation, especially since it took another six years after he began getting on their case about finding answers before answers were actually received. And it's funny how that works, because when you find out how this case gets resolved, you'll realize it really didn't have that much to do with the police anyway. And the searches and the people that they were investigating initially, Cruz, for example, had nothing to do with it. And they don't have anything to do with it. 
So this case is a wild, twisting road that does not necessarily provide the clean-cut answers you would want from a case, especially because of the fact that it took nine years to get answers. And then another seven years before all of the court processes were run through. And that's just crazy wrong, in my opinion. I don't think it's fair for family members or for business owners or for anybody who's a victim of a violent crime to have to sit and wait for somebody to be put on trial when they've been arrested for over six years. I think that is a little bit too much to ask, especially since it took 16 years to get to trial. The Browns Chicken Massacre is one that I believe has kind of been put to the back burner as far as mass murder cases go or just fast food restaurant murders go. You can find it if you look it up. I mean, Palatine, you know, there's a Wikipedia page for the Palatine Massacre, the Browns Chicken Massacre, and there there have been podcasts and there's been news specials and Chicago's covered this case a million times. But like in any case that affects this many people, I think there needs to be, and people want, closure. And unfortunately, you're not going to get that in this particular case. And that is something that is really concerning for everybody involved in criminal investigations. I know that having talked with Chief Mark Spetzel about the Amy Mahalovic case, that that is something that he is takes very personally. It is not something that these people can just punch a clock and go home for the night and not think about what they've been doing throughout their day, investigating a crime, investigating a murder or rape or you you know what? I mean, just any type of law enforcement official who is involved in investigations, they really are the unsung heroes in a lot of these cases because They take on so much mental anguish that it really becomes a problem. And I think you saw it last year in New York City with the huge increase in suicide amongst cops. And I think that is very common. I don't think it's reported enough because, one, police like to believe that they're tough and I can't blame them for that. That's their that's their whole thing. I mean, that's their that's their look. And if they show signs of weakness by saying, I may need some therapy or I'm not really dealing with this particular case all that well, I don't know if those people are getting the help or feel like they can get the help that they need, despite there being resources for those people. I know New York City has a hotline for police officers. I know there is a suicide hotline nationally. I know that you can go online and find online therapy if necessary. But we as people who enjoy true crime podcasts, enjoy true crime documentaries, I think a lot of the times we shortchange the investigations. And that's because I think people want it to have their own opinion on any case. And if the authorities say it's one particular thing, I think it's 
devil's advocate for a lot of people when they just say, no, it's it's got to be something else. Or if the end result isn't what somebody was looking for, then it may not be what they had all hoped for. So I think we, as people who create podcasts, people who ingest podcasts, people who write news stories, people who work in the news, you know, it's easy to blame the police if you don't get answers. But if the police are given a book without a chapter explaining what happened, and then another chapter that says, I'm the killer, they're really working off a blank playbook. So they literally have to make it up as they go. And that is not to say that they're making up the investigation. They just have to follow the leads that come in. And in the Browns chicken case, the leads began to dry up. And it took until 2002 before there was a major, major break in this case. And again, if it wasn't for the confession of a particular individual... We may never know. Stay tuned for next week's episode, part three of the Browns Chicken Massacre. I will bring you the trial as well as the final results of the investigation and who was actually involved in this case will kind of surprise you. And if you remember what I said at the end of episode one, Just think about the previous people that had been interviewed. And again, it took nine years, nine years before there was a major break in this case. So again, stay tuned for next week's episode of the Browns Chicken Massacre, part three. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Who Killed the Browns Chicken Massacre Part 2. I would also like to thank everyone who has taken time out of their days to help build my show's audience. As a reminder, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Currently, my passion case, my interview show where I interview the top podcasters in the industry about what cases got them involved in podcasting is on hiatus at the moment but will return with guests such as kelsey german sarah turney the hosts of evidence locker michelle kazuba nap time nancy and many many more and for the second year in a row i will be representing who killed who killed amy maholovic and my passion case on podcast row at CrimeCon. 2020 in Orlando. It is definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fan. I know that we were supposed to be there already and back, but the dates have been changed due to the pandemic. So the new dates are October 30th through November 1st, a Halloween weekend. CrimeCon, that sounds awesome. If you want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code AMY2020. And again, that's Amy2020. If you'd like to help support the show and make a donation, you can do so by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W. 
You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at BillHuffman3 or via PayPal. Every contribution really does help keep these podcasts running and it helps keep Slow Burn moving. You can help support the show also by leaving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you leave or listen to your favorite shows. Those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. I will be dropping another episode next Friday, part three of Brown's Chicken Massacre. And if you have any information regarding any of the other cases that I have covered, any of the unsolved cases, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And don't forget, you can always submit a tip anonymously via Crime Stoppers on their website or telephonically. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please do follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening this week. Until next time, please be healthy and stay safe. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.